Welcome to Recovery Plus Podcast. Fuck yesterday, focus on today. I'm your host, Dr. Mainly Hannon. Here, we celebrate and honor people in recovery one conversation at a time. Let's talk. Welcome back. This is episode three. This episode explores one woman's experience living with a life-threatening medical condition and substance use and the impact of powerful choices she's made along the way. I want to introduce to you a friend of mine for over 25 years. Hi, Isabel. Really nice to see you. What's happening? Hi, Maylee. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, me too. So where are you calling from? I'm calling from Oakland, California. All right. Well, I hope the weather's going well there. It's a beautiful day. Very. It's actually, it's almost 80 degrees today. It's the first really really warm day in a while. Very nice. Well, again, I really appreciate you hanging out with us and um, again, talking about some pretty serious things. But also, I my hope is that people can really take in what Isabella is talking about and her experience because here's the thing, you're not alone. All right. Um, so let's just kick this off. What do you think? Let's do it. So What was the medical condition that you were diagnosed with and, you know, what things were happening once you received that news and after? So um, let's take a look here. Pain. Pain Mm -hmm. is what was happening. I was in a great deal of physical pain. Mm -hmm. Um, So this was around 2014. And I was, I had just spent a month in recovery from a year's worth of aggressive treatments for breast cancer. At this time, at the time, that was uh, stage three breast cancer. And uh, in my one month recovery after the treatment, I suffered this horrible pain in my back that became worse and worse. And for what I remember, the month of May, the way I look back at it in 2014, I was in this excruciating pain and, and, and nobody would take me seriously because um, they were just like, well, there's no way it can be cancer. You just, you just finished a, a year of really aggressive treatments. And I was just doing um, all kinds of things to try to remedy this pain. Mm-hmm. And, um, and finally, uh, one of the, um, the radiation oncologists that I had worked with decided to do an MRI of my spine and found that I had a tumor that um, fractured my spine in the middle there in T4-5 area, mm-hmm. 70% compression fracture in the middle of my back, uh, which explains the pain. And uh, from there, you know, of course, I went on to talk to a couple of uh, different second and third opinions, but essentially it was stage four metastatic breast cancer that had spread at that moment to my spine, to the bones, right? Mm -hmm. So the diagnosis was that it was incurable, right? Metastatic cancer, uh, breast cancer is incurable. And they told me that I had about a 3% chance of survival past two to three years. Uh, In other words, a 97% chance that I wouldn't survive. And I was absolutely dumbfounded. Um, 
And, you know, at that, at that time, since I had spent a month in so much pain, I, I, what I wanted more than anything was relief. And at the end of that first oncology visit, um, my, my oncologist wrote me out a prescription for oxy. Mm -hmm. And I, I just remember, I remember being in shock over, um, the news and being in relief that finally someone was, you know, taking me seriously and I didn't have to keep taking Advil, which was not working. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I grabbed that prescription and I ran down to the Walgreens and filled it. And I just remember in that, you know, that essentially, that essentially became the beginning of what I call the detour. And I call it the detour because it went, it went, you know, really, really downhill from there. Um, again, in, in, within the context of everything, I had spent a year in treatment already. Right. Um, different chemos. I'd been hospitalized with MRSA. I had um, mastectomy. I had three months of radiation. I had kind of an extended treatment period, uh, mostly due to that MRSA hospitalization. And, um, and all throughout that, I had an extremely positive attitude or I don't want to call it positive attitude. Actually, let me step back from that because that there's there's a whole there's a whole misperception I think out there in the field that we have to have a positive attitude about um, difficult things. But uh, what I'm trying to set is set the context for sure. for why I call this the detour is that I didn't think I was going to die. You know, I thought that I was going to um, come out on top of this. I knew, I knew nothing about breast cancer when I was first diagnosed. Right. And, um, I did set out in the beginning to see if I could like what I call try an experiment to see if all the different philosophies in my life that I believed in, if I could really put them to the test when the shit hits the fan, so to speak. Right. Like, and I really believe what I believe about life and stuff when I'm going through this illness. And so then now this a year into it, the illness gets upgraded, if you will, um, to incurable and um, essentially terminal. And uh, the detour happened when, as you know, as you're you're an expert, knowing that when that opiates have that funny little ability to have you build tolerance. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, at first the, the euphoria that I felt from it was like a really welcome distraction to this horrible, shocking news that I had. I bet. Um, and so I didn't really pay attention that much to how I was handling it. And mm-hmm. in the beginning, um, and I will say it's not my first rodeo. Um, I have had, <laughs> I have had substance abuse issues in the past, including with opiates, um, but never to the extent for which happened here. Um, so I had uh, the pain continued to get worse because then I had this uh, extremely intense radiation that burned my esophagus, mm-hmm. and so. Now I was like just in double the pain and, you know, it was a combination of treating the pain plus wanting to feel high. Um, And then 
in that time frame, I was getting more PET scans to see how how the radiation was working and the chemo with no end date that I was starting. And um, the cancer was spreading. It was spreading to my liver. It was spreading to other parts of my bones. And the situation looked really bleak, right? I mean, it it definitely looked like what they said. And um, I kept increasing the pain meds and increasing and increasing the tolerance. Um, And, you know, I guess it was working until it's not, right? Sure, yeah. And uh, I just remember being like um, really just numb and um, I spun out of control. I I had spun completely out of control and I had lost a friend in the middle of that due to it. I had, you know, on any given day, I had like scratches and abrasions all over my arms and face and stomach because of the itching from the, from the oxy. And, um, and I just wasn't there. Like mm-hmm. Isabel wasn't home. I wasn't home in my own self anymore. I had, I had just completely lost grasp of who I was. And one of the things I, you know, thought about was like, well, Hey, I, I, I'm this, you know, incurable metastatic cancer patient. I have the green light for oxy if I want it. Right. I have the green light. Like I have the, yes, like you can have this, right. You could be dying and, and you can have this. And at first I was really excited about that until, you know, until it becomes this thing that you're no longer, you're not, you're not having anything good from it anymore. And you're just losing who you are as a person. And I had, I realized, you know, I, I, I sat down and one of the few moments of complete um, presence that I had. And I was just like, wow, I, I basically have a monkey on my back. And then there's a monkey on the back of that monkey. Right. right. I've got this diagnosis and I'm addicted to opiates. So I decided to quit. <laughs> I decided to quit the oxy. And um, how do you the, decide? Writing, I'm sorry. How do you just, yeah. how do you decide? I mean, you're, you got 3%. That's the number, right? Right. And you're like, fuck this. I'm just going to stop. How does that happen for you? How did that look? Well, <clears throat> In that context, again, I have to understand that I I had the perception I was going to die soon, really soon, right? Because um, each PET scan kept revealing that it was worse. And, um, and what I realized one moment, I had this epiphany where, and this kind of goes back to one of my philosophies about life, which is about death, I... Um, I realized that if, if I am going to die, I want to be present for it. I want to be present and die consciously. And, you know, also at the time, my family and loved ones were, you know, 
doing everything they could to help me and take care of me and showing up for me and, and, and giving me love and, and all these wonderful things. And I, I wanted to be there with them and show them that I could be present with them and that I appreciated it. And that I had a bigger desire to be present than to be numb, right? Mm -hmm. I had a bigger desire to be, to die consciously than to be like out of it. And so I, I did it. I did enact a whole plan, a support plan around it, right? There's there, there was a whole support plan around it, but at the end of the day, it came down to, um, to quitting cold Turkey essentially because time was not on my side. Right. I could, I could reduce it over time. I, you know, I could go on another, uh, you know, Suboxone and all Mm -hmm. these other things, which are perfectly legitimate, wonderful options. Um, but I didn't feel like I had the time. And so I decided to just quit cold Turkey and, and in order to do that, I did, I did set up a, a support plan that involved friends and, and professionals and, um, uh, you know, I mean, I wasn't by myself completely. Right. Um, although at the end of the day, you, you, you are by yourself when you're, you know, I, I remember the last night, the last night that I, that I had the last pill mm-hmm. and I said, tomorrow, you know, tomorrow I have none, you know, I, I, I'm going from like 200 milligrams of oxy a day to zero the next day. And it's like, brace yourself. <laughs> Jesus. This is going to be a, this is going to be a crash. Right. Um, so as expected, and, and it, I went into severe depression after that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there was literally no joy present. There was, and as you, as a doctor understand, I had stripped myself of de- dopamine mm-hmm. and serotonin and whatever all the chemicals are for joy. I had just like stripped them out of me and I was, uh, severely, severely depressed. And so it it was at that time that I realized, um, that there was really only one way that I knew how to get out of that. And that was to practice, um, my Qigong practice, um, which I had been practicing on and off. And thankfully before this time, I had learned Qigong like a decade before this time through um, my grandmaster, Dr. Effie Chow Mm -hmm. and serendipitously, she came back into my life when I was first, when I was diagnosed with cancer and kept insisting that I needed to um, practice Qigong, that it was very healing and stuff. And I did, I did it, but I did it on and off. Right. And it, it, Um, and, and she told me, you know, lots of people in China, for example, you know, they do Qigong, you know, six, eight hours a day and they cure themselves of cancer. And I was like, yeah, okay, well, how am I going to do, you know, how am I going to do that for six or eight hours a day? You know, it didn't seem reasonable or feasible, but, um, well, there's nothing like when you're extremely depressed to, to motivate you, um, to get out of the depression. I mean, I had a one track mind at that moment. And I went and I did do Qigong 
um, about three hours a day, every day. Um, until slowly, but surely, uh, you know, I would say it took about three months Mm -hmm. or so before I had that first hit of joy coming back. And I remember, I remember it happened. I was talking on the phone with my sister in Florida, one of my sisters, uh, the one that lives in Florida. And she and I, whenever we talk, we're usually always joking. We, we generally can't ever get serious. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, for this whole three months, it was nothing like the usual conversations we had. And this, this one day, I just remember she cracked a joke and I just like laughed out loud. And I was like, Oh my God, Oh my God, joy. I was like, Mm -hmm. it it was like a very distinctive moment Mm -hmm. when, um, when I felt joy come back. And, um, and so it was well worth it. Um, and I did a lot of things like, um, I made sticky notes all over the house that, um, that said things like, um, it feels better to be present. Um, I like myself better when I'm present. I'm in charge of my behavior when I'm present. I also did a lot of praying and pleading for help. Um, and I did, I did a lot of thanking. I thanked the addiction. I thanked it for showing me that something needed to change. And that may seem counterintuitive, but one of the, one of the tenets of what helped me through this whole thing was to never treat anything as a fight, but as a love harder. And so I wasn't going to fight my addiction and be angry with it the same way I wasn't going to fight the cancer and be angry with it and, and be like, I got to get this out of here. Instead, it was about turning inward and showing compassion and love and, and being like, you know, you're here to show me something and thank you. Um, giving gratitude, uh, because, Gratitude is the way it's, it's like this, it's this, the way out of almost every tricky situation, um, mm-hmm. that, that I know of. Um, and so, <clears throat> wow. um, <clears throat> you know, I guess, I guess what I would say to other people is, you know, there, there is a, there is a bigger desire. There, there is a bigger desire than the one to, um, get high or be numb. And, 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 you know, I'm not, we, we all know that it goes way beyond that. It becomes just a maintenance thing, right? It's like, you can't, it's a physiological response in addition to everything else. So, but there, there is a bigger desire than to maintain or to be numb. Um, and you, and you got to find it and, and trust that you were born with it because it's part of the human spirit, right? It's the, it's the human spark. We were all born with it. Right. And, um, you're not losing something, you're gaining something 
Right. So. I mean, that's just extraordinary. First of all, you want to be more conscious and present so you can die consciously. Just right. think about that shit for a hot second. And then not fighting cancer, but loving harder um, and stay in gratitude despite the addiction or because of it. Um, yeah, I think that's just amazing. It's mm-hmm. amazing. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not, I don't know if a lot of us could go, you know what? I want to feel this shit and I want to feel it <laughs> deeply and I'm going to motorboat that shit. You know, I mean, like what in the hell present to die consciously and to love harder. I mean, those are really powerful. Well, the, the concept of being present for your death, which is a sacred passage, right, that we all go through, um, is something that I studied when I studied Tibetan Buddhism. And, and, it, and it's influenced my life in other ways, too. I mean, I was raised Catholic, and, and, and there's, uh, you know, the talk about the life after this or the eternal life or whatever. And it's not even so much about that aspect of it as, you know, the in the Tibetan Buddhists revere this death, the death process. It's, it's like, a, yeah. it's revered. And, and just because in our society, we look at it as it's such a, we're like, so robbed because we, we look at it um, as a taboo, mm-hmm. like as a taboo to talk about death or to prepare for death or, um, or to consider it the sacred act that is, how do I say, I don't know, like inspiring even it's, you know, it's the passageway to the next dimension. Right. Sure. And so I had, that was one of the things I want, I had studied that I believed in that. And it's kind of like, okay, (laughs) okay. Well, can you really feel that way when your death is actually looming over your shoulder right. a little bit too soon. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's um, that it took some, it took some time. This was not an overnight situation by any means. And it took some time to really come to grips with it, but it, it did. Um, I did eventually learn to accept Accept death, and um, you know it. It goes. It, it's a. Uh, it's like. Um, it's like when I I decide I I made a decision essentially. That's right. Yeah. Um, so if I step back for a minute, um, when I was first diagnosed. Um, with the, with the, when I was with the upgrade with stage four, I called Dr. Chow on the phone and I was crying. And I said, I said, Dr. Chow, I said, you know what? They told me I'm stage four metastatic. And they, they said, it's not a matter of if I'm going to die, but when Mm -hmm. they started talking to me about quality of life, they started, you know, uh, the, the labels on my treatment says take until toxicity is no longer, uh, tolerable. Um, yeah. and, and, and things like that. And, and she's, and she's sat, you know, she's sat back and was calm and patient and loving. And, and she said, you know, Lisa, um, well, you need to make a decision. 
And I was like, what are you talking about? Make a decision. I'm pretty sure that's what I just told you. They're telling me it's not a decision. And, but, you know, I, I sort of gathered underneath it all. I gathered, there was a part of me anyway, that, that knew what she was talking about. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that little, that little particle clung there. And I thought about it for a really long time um, thereafter. And I, you know, I mean, and I had all these thoughts about um, science and how that's how, what, what is possible and the nature of reality and what is actually possible. Um, and then I also very, I'm very well aware of the human spirit and the human capacity and what, and what we can do. And um, I continued to turn inward. And then one day I had another epiphany. Um, and I was like, you know, waking up, I was in pain. I was miserable before the day even started, which was most days. And I was just like exhausted. And I was just like, you know what? I could just, I could just let this be, right? I could just go. Like, no one's going to be mad at me if mm -hmm. I just like, stop trying, you know? And then this other voice in me was like, no, but you can't do that. Like you love life. And, and this overwhelming sensation of I'm not done yet. Like I, I was just like, I am not done yet. I, I I'm not done yet. And then it clicked. I was like, so there is a decision to be made. There is a decision to be made. And that's that was that was one level of the decision. Sure. I should say there was many levels of the decision. But um that was one level and, and that was really eye-opening for me. And from there, essentially what I decided was, I mean, first and foremost, you have to you have to believe that it's possible. Mm -hmm. Like, so it's possible to live, uh, right? Um, it's possible to live. Sure. And this and this whole notion of possibility is a really big theme for me as well. It's like, mm -hmm. what is possible? You know, I was like, okay, so I'll be, I'll be inside of the 3% that survives. I'll, I'll mm -hmm. have a radical remission. I'll have a divine intervention. I'll have a bona fide miracle. I don't care what it is. I don't care what it is. Please mm -hmm. just help me live is, 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 and I would have these prayers too. Yeah. And I, and I did ask for a divine intervention. I did ask for it. Um, and you know, well, technically, technically all of those options are possible, right? They're all possible. Likely yeah. is a different story, right? Ah, and that's when absolutely. I realized that possible was the only matter of worth to focus on. What's possible. What's possible. Not what's likely, what is but what's possible. possible. Uh -huh. Yeah. And not what others have, you know, not necessarily, I use what others have done, but not necessarily what others have done. Cause in my, it, it, you know, in my support group, women were dying every, every week, right? right? Every week women are, I mean, the, the severity of this disease is astronomical, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I decided basically to believe that it was possible to heal and that um, 
healing is more than we think it is, right? And um, and I chose to live. Now, I also chose to to accept death. Mm-hmm. because I find that everything is a paradox. So my decision was a both and. It was a both and, right? right. Um, because of course, uh, choosing to live does not mean that I actually will, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not in my hands. It's in the hands of the creator or whoever made right. us, you know? And um And it it also doesn't mean that all of the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of other people who have died from this disease, it doesn't mean that they didn't choose to live, right? That's not what I'm, that's not what I'm saying. Um, And you, and you might not choose to live when you're dying because you're, you're dying, right? But what I'm talking about is a decision about energy and how we manage our energy. So in choosing to live and accepting death, you know, in choosing to live, I, I choose to go all in right. and like do what it takes and Whatever immerse takes. myself. Yeah. Immerse myself in possibility, immerse myself in others who have had radical remissions, immerse myself. I met people who had, I, I read about people who had, I totally immersed myself. I also, um, you know, uh, protected myself energetically from all the naysayers and and that's a huge huge uh situation but um i would say the biggest part about this choosing is not so much about life but it's about death accepting death um that was the most critical part because if you you're not if you don't let go of the not wanting to die then you're creating contradictory uh, you know, you're creating conflict. So if I'm, if like, so in other words, if I'm pushing along saying, I want to live, I want to live, I'm pushing along, but then there's another part of me that's saying, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. That's creating conflict. Mm -hmm. And I, and I knew that, and I saw that. And I, and I said, I have to have to really, really fully embrace this. Yeah. 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 And, um, and the way I, you know, and I mean, of course the way I, did that is is a whole other topic, but what I can say now is that I just embraced that death is not what it seems. It's not what it seems to be. Um, wow. And uh, you know, and and that was another thing that I immersed myself into studying. Like my father had died the year before, and um, uh, you know, I, I became obsessed with where did he go because I still felt his presence, but. Obviously, he wasn't here in the physical world, and um, and I became obsessed with what what happens when we die, right? And and uh, it, it's it's cultivating it's cultivating a belief that um, and and of like an inner knowing, right? Mm-hmm. It's not about making up stories. It's it's going deeper within um, and putting the pieces of the puzzle together for yourself right? This is all internal to, to believe that, um, like I, I like to say, I like to say death is not a destination. It's a dimension. Interesting. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course, of course there is the paradox, 
the paradox of accepting death is that, you know, I don't know who said this, but when you're no longer afraid to die, that's when you can truly live. And that is what I experienced. I mean, that is, that is what I experienced. And I call that, um, I call that cosmic grace and I I've written a book about it. Mm -hmm. Um, and it is, it's like this total sense of freedom and liberation. When you get this fear out of the way Mm -hmm. that you don't even probably know is there unless you're having a terminal illness or a chronic illness, right? When you get this fear out of the way, your whole, your whole life opens up in a brand new way. And the appreciation that you have for it, it just is astronomical. Wow. That's amazing. So with all of that, um, I mean, that's a lot to take in. And amazing attitude about choice and possibilities. You know, um, can I ask you your status now? Yes, I, um, you know, it's funny. So I am, I am in remission. I am cancer free. Um, And um, what I realize, and this has taken me a long time to get to the cure, is that, that no longer even matters. Um, the truth, what matters is, um, I had set out in the beginning to find out how is it possible to be okay in this moment, regardless of the circumstance. And I can, and I can tell you a story about that. That just I call it the bathtub story, um, but. Uh, yeah. So, so essentially, you know, cause I've had to, I've had to think about this a lot and in writing my book a lot, there was different mm-hmm. times where I was in remission, then I was out of remission mm-hmm. and I was in remission and I'm like, wait, hold on a minute. The story, well, the story isn't ending yet. So I don't know how it ends. Right. And, um, and I'm still faced with the same conundrum of having to accept this moment for what it is, whether I am in remission or not. And so, so Yes, I'm ecstatic that I am, and I believe that I'm going to put cancer behind me 100%, and I continue to look at my future that way. Mm-hmm. I also am, I feel like I've already, I've already gotten, in a way, what I, what I set out for, which was to know that you can be okay in the, in the moment, regardless of the circumstance. And it's a whole different way of approaching suffering and and it was a big question that I had and it goes kind of ties into like looking at everything that we do and in, in, as an experiment well I don't know if this is going to work but let's right. try it as an experiment possibilities you know? possibility and um and I remember one day I remember so Dr. Chow had prescribed me with uh four baths a day with Epsom salt right and this was this was for the pain of the fracture. Mm-hmm. And, and then once, when I was off of the meds as well, right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because when you're submersed in water, the negative ions, um, I don't know, they do something, right. <laughs> they do something. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and then you're, you know, you're in water, so you're floating. And so in, in that moment, you, there's, there's no pressure on your bones mm-hmm. and there is relief. Yeah. yeah. There is like, there is a, there is a, pe- there is a bit of relief. Of course, 
you know, at first I was like, well, wait a minute, there's a relief for a second. But when I get back out of the bathtub, right. it hurts again. And of course, you know, Dr. Chow was like, well, you know, is it, but is it 1% better? You know, is it 1% better for one minute? Then, then that's what you focus on, right? That's what you focus on. And so anyway, this, this one day, this was another day, I'll say, it was another epiphany, but it was bigger than an, it was even bigger than an epiphany. I was I was laying in the bathtub, and I was sort of I, I was really sad, and I was sort of I was thinking about I can't believe what has happened to my life. Like I can't believe here I am, laying here in my bathtub all day long, and uh, remembering what just a year ago I had fire in my belly. I was working. I was successful mm-hmm. professional. I, um, all these things that I could, that I wasn't doing anymore. And now not only that, but I was possibly dying and the bathroom walls seemed to like get smaller and smaller and shrink were shrinking in on me. And I, and I thought, I can't believe I'm going to die. And I never, I never unfurled all of Isabel. Mm -hmm. I felt this like soul crushing guilt that I hadn't become who I was meant to be, or that I hadn't done what I wanted to do, um, that I had more to do. And, and that like writing my book. Right. And, and that, um, there was some guilt that, as well as just sadness. And I was lingering in this feeling and, and, and being miserable. Mm. And suddenly I had this epiphany of, huh, well, what if I'm suffering so that others don't have to, I mean, like, or what if I'm suffering with a purpose, you know? And I was like, what? Oh yeah, I'm Isabel. doing that right now. Like, like, what? Yeah. I'm like, what, <laughs> Isabel? Okay, whatever. Uh, you know, stop being so California, I thought. <laughs> you woo-woo. <laughs> right. So, yeah. And and that's, you know, that was my initial reaction to that thought. And then and then I was like, well, you know, I'm sitting there contemplating how that, how that could actually be possible with quantum entanglement. <laughs> and I'm like, thinking about, well, how could I, how could I suffer so that others don't need to? And I'm, and then I'm like, well, wait a minute, hold on, hold on, hold on. You don't have to answer that question. The shift in the energy that I felt and the sense of peace that like dove into that bathroom that day was unbelievable. I was lighter. I suddenly was like, I can do this. And, and I just looked and I thought, Oh my, is this what divine intervention is? I literally, the moment before I was cathartic and now I have this thought about suffering with a purpose and I feel, I wouldn't go as far as to say good perhaps, but I I felt like empowered Mm -hmm. and I felt lighter. And then it gave me more like, I was like, oh, I could even, you know, my book was a big deal for me because I was writing it through this process and it gave me more to write about. Suddenly it was like, 
maybe you can figure out how to <laughs> scientifically say how this happens. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the notion of suffering for others is also rooted in Buddhism, mm -hmm. right? There's all these practices about taking on other suffering or um, suffering so others don't have to, etc. And I was not at all, that was nowhere in the purview of my thinking. Um, it just popped in, right? It was something I had, you know, studied and participated in way long before this. And um, I'm just grateful that that thought was implant implanted in my my head, however long ago it was, because it it really saved me. And um, And I realized in that moment, in that dire moment, that I had received exactly what I asked for, which was to be okay in this moment, regardless of circumstance. And and that has stayed with you. Is and that, right? that has right, right. And because you keep I keep coming back to that because that's all that we ever have is this present moment, right? It's like this suffering or grief and fear, it forces us to be present. I love that. And you have to give yourself space for it, right? Yeah. And, but if the moment that you put, a, shift the context to your suffering and give it a meaning, it, it becomes way bigger than you. Mm. It becomes way bigger than you. And, you know, and as, somebody said, I don't know who we live for a cause greater than ourselves. Right. And that's when you tap into that feeling and that, and that's what I tapped into that day. I tapped into this cause greater than, than myself. And this thing that was bigger than me, this thing that was way bigger than Isabel in the bathtub mm -hmm. dying from cancer. Like it was just, that was just a story. That was just a little piece. And that bigger thing that I tapped into was what wasn't fuel, right? It was a fuel. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, I think that's extraordinary to to be able to just share that. Um, and I don't know if you are comfortable with the word inspiration. Um, or, you know, it's kind of remarkable, you know, 3%. And here you are. Um, but it is, it's fucking right. remarkable, you know, and, and it's extraordinary. Thank you. Um, any last thoughts that you would share with someone who experiences something similar? There's a, um, a great deal of fear and the uncertainty of all of it, right? The uncertainty. Absolutely of addiction and what's my life going to be like the uncertainty of, am I going to live? I'm going to die or the uncertainty of, am I going to have this job or not have this job or whatever? Um, and I would say that we can develop an acumen for, 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 we can develop an ability to cultivate patience and an acumen in dealing with uncertainty because, because, this moment is never complete. And so we don't know what comes next, right? This moment is never complete. And so the more that we stretch ourselves to 
become comfortable with uncertainty, mm-hmm. the easier it is to be okay in this present moment, regardless of the circumstance. Um, and so I would say, I would say uncertainty can be our friend. Um, and that to me, it all comes down to possibility. What is possible? And, and not for someone else, not what anybody else is telling you, not what mainstream society is telling you, not any of those things, but what actually is possible and then focus on that and not all not all the buts that come after it you know not all the but this you know it's possible to survive but most people don't or it's possible you know Mm -hmm. to stay just in that first half of the phrase (laughs) what is possible because it's about managing your energy and being in the moment kind of and being in the moment right amazing well, I want to thank you so much, Isabel, my dear, dear friend of over 25 years. And it's yes. extraordinary to be talking to you right now about this very thing. Um, thank you so much. No, thank you. You know, and here's the thing. Your story is definitely about focusing on today. So thank you so much. I heart you. Thank you, Maylee. Thank you. Take care. And thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to Recovery Plus Podcast. Fuck yesterday, focus on today. I'm your host, Dr. May Lee Hennon, celebrating and honoring people in recovery one conversation at a time. This podcast is sponsored by Red Door Coaching and Consulting. You can find my podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon. Thanks again for listening. Talk soon.